0: Hey, we are so glad that you're here, particularly if you're new. Welcome to our community. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke. Uh, Luke is how we say it. And Luke chapter 4. What we're going to do this morning is kind of a part two from last week. We're going to, well, you'll see. We're going to be waiting in the deep end a little bit. Um, Luke chapter 4. By the way, if, if you are a regular around here... I want to let you know on April 6th, Mr. Michael Cork and his wife Denise are going to be visiting our 8 o'clock service. And so I want to let you know it's worth getting up a bit extra early for that. We're so excited to have him back. He was uh, one of our worship pastors for years and years and years here. Um, Luke chapter 4. Also, I, I spent yesterday working on a play structure, one of those big Costco play structures. You know, it's like hundreds of pieces of Lumber and lots of screws and things, and and men and women. I just I I want to just share with you a lesson I learned yesterday. Where the drill fails, the hammer succeeds. Luke chapter four, verse one. You'll remember Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it can all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem. Had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then the the devil quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They uh, They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what's so interesting here is that Jesus, as we saw last week, this is really part two. As we saw last week, right, Jesus, the tests, these temptations really had to do with the kind of son of God he was going to be. But what I want, I want to kind of make the obvious point and then spend some time on it because we so quickly overlook it, is it's very interesting to me that one of the ways that the tempter tempts Jesus is by quoting scripture to him. And, and, and that one of the things that I, I think sometimes we in America are guilty of, uh, is being susceptible to that kind of pulling stuff out of context. Because if you go to Psalm 91, go there really quickly, Psalm 91 is really an amazing promise that God will keep somebody from harm if you just trust Him. So. our our adversary looks at Jesus and says, okay, so, um, hey, turn this stone to bread. Nope, I'll trust God for my provision. Hey, uh, I'll give you all the nations of the world, just bow down to me. Nope, I'll just worship and trust God alone. Okay, well, if you really want to trust God, throw yourself off the temple because here's this verse that says he'll protect you. And it's not just the verse, it's the whole whole psalm that says this. Psalm 91. Notice verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Shelter and shadows—those were those. Were, some think those are different names for uh, parts of the temple. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. So, so this is the the Psalm that's being quoted to Jesus as He's at the top of the temple in the shadow of the temple or the wing of the temple. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely God will save the person that trusts Him from the hunter snare and from deadly pestilence, sickness, Disease. He will cover you with feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and make the Most High your dwelling No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. And this is the part now Satan quotes. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike a foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. So, Hey Jesus, you really want to trust God? Go ahead and cast yourself off. And he quotes a passage that is an unconditional promise to protect the person from harm who trusts God. Now, if you just took that passage, I mean you'd think, well, that's that's the that's I want that as my life verse, right? No harm will come to me because I'm trusting in God. And I want you to notice. That of all the ways the enemy goes after Jesus, he's using one of the Psalms to do it. And for us, we're the kind of folks, we believe this about the Bible. We believe you can open the Bible and not know anything about it and benefit. It is so simple, a child can open it and understand its central message. But we also believe it's deep enough that you could spend your whole life plumbing its depths and never reach the bottom. And both things are true. So I want to talk about how we plumb the depths, because I've seen me and I've seen the Christian community in America get swept up when passages are taken out of context, blown into a full theology of blessing, and the people of God, who really turn out to be some of the most blessed people in the history of the world who live in America, spend their lives just trying to find more blessing, Whereas I really think the invitation is to use the blessing we've been given to bless others. And so what I, what I see happening is that there's this grid through which we read things that just needs to be deconstructed and then put back together. So this, there are motivational messages, there are inspirational messages. This is an educational message. This is <laughs> This is worthy of a shout of praise. So we're going to do a little hermeneutics today. I want to do a message on how you understand this book. I want to go through six different dimensions that I see behind every text, and then I want to apply those dimensions to Luke 4. And then if you go back and listen to the message from last week, you'll see all I did in message prep was take the six dimensions and apply them, answer them, and that was the teaching. Okay? So this goes with that week. And it will teach you how to date well. Now, first dimension is this. Okay, six dimensions, and I'm sure there are more than this, but here's six that are forefront in my mind. Dimension number one is the historical dimension. This Bible is about real people at real places at real times, and it was written for an original audience and not for us. Now, God certainly speaks to us thousands of years later, but it was for them before it's for us. So we believe that you can open the Bible, close your eyes, pick a verse, and God will speak. Yes. But that's not maturity. Maturity is recognizing that this is real people, real places, real times, and that there's work that has to be done to really understand a lot of the nuance. So let me give you an example. I have in my hot little hand romantic emails from my sweetie to me in the year 2000. Emails these days are much shorter. (laughs) Hey, you know, what do you want for dinner? But back then, there was some romance. Now, imagine 2,000 years from now, somebody in the Middle East speaking an entirely different language gets these. What would they have to do to understand them? The message is simple enough that a child could understand kind of the... But think about what they'd miss. So here's, here's one... Hey, says Justy426 at AOL.com. I'm just about to hit the hay. Hey, I'm just about to hit the hay. You are up and ready to begin your Saturday. I'm so tired. I did three runs tonight by myself. I didn't ask anyone to help me tonight. I pretty much moved everything. But can you imagine hit the hay? What's hit the hay going to sound like? I mean, we know that means like go to sleep. But 2,000 years from now in a different language, I'm going to hit the hay? <laughs> Hi. I can hear her say it. I love technology. I love that I was able to check my home email account here at school. was hoping to have email waiting for you and I'm so, all caps, happy that there was. Like I said last night, I'm so grateful that I am so busy. I didn't get back from LAX until 11.15 last night. Finally got to bed about half an hour later. I have to tutor until 5.45 tonight and then get Katie to John Wayne. Now, we know who LAX is or what LAX is. and We know who John Wayne is, and this is a reference to the airport. But 2,000 years from now, you think people would get that little nuance if they didn't do some homework? Ohio State won. I'm sure this was clearly not this year. Ohio State won. I am sure that you aren't surprised. There have been some awesome close games today. Quite a few overtimes and wins in the last seconds. I haven't gotten to watch much. This is definitely my favorite time of year. Spring is in the air, and the best basketball around is on the air. (laughs) Referring to March Madness on television. Now, 2,000 years later, you pick these up. Can you understand that they were love letters? Yeah. You can understand the basics, but you're going to miss... The best basketball around was on the air. I'm going to hit the hay, LAX, John Wayne, right? You're going to miss it. And so why is it that we think we can just grab this, translated it already for us into English, and just go, well, yeah, okay. What's this verse mean to me? Can God speak that way? Absolutely. And reading the Bible that way is better than not reading it at all. But I just want to up our game a little bit by saying, well, there's a whole host of other questions that we need to be asking, All right? That's the first dimension. Second dimension is the literary dimension. In other words, the Bible is made up of different kinds of literature. These are called genres. So there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's apocalypse, there's parable, there's proverbs, there's narrative, And you read all of those differently, right? I mean, if I'm sitting here and I pick up a biography of C.S. Lewis versus the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis, I read these differently, correct? So when we talk about people in his biography, I assume they're real. When I talk about Aslan and Lucy and, you know, Edmund, I'm assuming, like, these are parabolic. This is a story. But when it comes to the Scriptures, people will say, well, do you read it literally, And and yes isn't the right answer. The the yes should be, I read it literarily. Where it's meant to be taken literally, I take it literally. Where it's meant to be metaphor, I take it metaphorically. Where it's meant to be poetic, I take it poetically. So when you get to different parts of the Bible, part of the confusion comes because we're using the rules of one genre to try to interpret a different kind. Third, or fourth. Third is what I said is the narrative dimension in other words this the text you're looking at is part of a bigger story now you say no duh I say how many people claim for their life verse Jeremiah 29 for no the plans I have for you says the Lord plans to bless you and prosper you that is all over America but the part right before it immediately before it says I'm not going to talk to you for 70 years while you're in exile I don't see many Americans claiming that one Right? And it's fine to have bits and pieces of motivational passages, but man, it gets so easily twisted. I mean, my kids uh, enjoy puzzles. I enjoy puzzles. What's the most important part of a puzzle? Not the corners, no. Nope. It's the box top, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to be really clear. Right? I mean, I can try to put a puzzle together without the box top, and you can do that. It's a lot of extra work. But to really put a puzzle together, well, it's really helpful to know how all the pieces fit together. So, how does Jesus saying, love your enemies and forgive them, square with God who says, destroy this people, even their women and children? I mean, see, we get into trouble because most of us don't have a box top. We just kind of pick and choose without any reference to the bigger story. And you can use the Bible to say anything. Let me give you an example of the abuse of this. Mary Poppins. I know you were thinking of that. (laughs) Mary Poppins, great Disney movie, mid-60s, kind of a musical. Let me show you a bit of Mary Poppins. All right, just in case you haven't seen it. Mary Poppins, Walt Disney's newest and most delightfully entertaining motion picture. Starring the toast of Broadway's musical stage, the incomparable Julie Andrews. For a spoonful of sugar, helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. the Medicine go down. Just a spoonful. so my kids look when I'm about to give them medicine. Right there. In a most delightful. Right, so it's cute, it's sweet, it's about a nanny that comes, and there's animation, and they kind of they help this family become more of a family. It's just really positive, really sweet. But there's another way to tell the Mary Poppins story if you just pick and choose some parts. Instead of being sweet, it can be terrifying. Go ahead, turn your eyes to the screen. This is called the Scary Mary Edition. You can tell mary poppins one way or you can tell mary poppins a completely different way same is true with the scriptures right i mean i i have and i haven't i don't recommend this book by the way but i have something called the awkward moments children's bible and it is absolutely rated r it is unbelievably profane but what it is are these snippets of the bible that are the most unflattering here's jesus saying hate your mother and father Here's here's the cute children's story of Noah and the ark where God exterminates the human race except for one family. Right? Here's God commanding an entire people group be slaughtered, even women and children and livestock. And so they have all of these awful, awful, awful pictures of the angry Jesus. And what is this? Well, this is just Scary Mary applied to the Scriptures, right? You just pick and choose and you can, tell what any, you can tell whatever story you want. And part of what the American church does that's, I think, tragic is we don't tell the whole story. And if you don't have the box top about how the thing fits together and the recognition that it was progressively revealed, it's very easy to succumb to these kind of arguments. Right? And so we believe there's an historical dimension. It was for them, the original audience. See, the historical dimension... I forgot to draw this for you. And it's an amazing diagram. 21st. So here's 1st century audience, 21st century audience. See, what we want to do is we want to read the Bible and say, hey, how is it relevant to me? When in actuality, I think the harder and more important work is, how would the original hearers have heard it? And then, how does it apply to me? See, if we just jump from here to here without doing this direction, man, you get some really wacky stuff floating around the American church, right? So the historical dimension looks backwards and says, how would the original audience have heard this? The literary dimension recognizes that you read different parts of the Bible differently. The narrative dimension means it's all part of a bigger story, and the bigger story helps interpret the individual pieces. The fourth dimension is the most important. It's the gospel dimension. And it is, the Bible is a story not about you improving your life. Not about, this isn't a self-help manual. This isn't about you being a better husband, father, student, son, or daughter. This isn't about five tips for a better marriage or three techniques for a more successful business. This is the story of God invading human history relentlessly in love and pursuing His wayward creation that's the he's the star of the story but when i read it it's about me what do i get out of it what does it mean to me so we read it narcissistically and individualistically whereas the scripture was went communally with god as the center so the gospel part the record of what god has done has to be given its due weight before you ever get to what we have to do but so often the bible is just this nice set of moral lessons but that's not gospel Gospel is what God has done for us, and then we respond. Moralism is just, here's what we do to receive God's blessing. Gospel is, we've received God's blessing in Christ, now go do. Fifth dimension. One of my favorite bands of the 60s. It wasn't alive then, I, just, I like saying that for some older folks here. Fifth dimension is the subversive dimension. In other words, I believe the text of Scripture was revolutionary for its day. It may not seem revolutionary to us when Paul says, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. That feels totally backwards. For his day, wives, submit to your husbands, that was like no-brainer. Of course, that's what wives do, they're property. But what was revolutionary is like the 20 verses that come after the wives, submit to your husbands, where husbands are called to love your wives. In the first century, nobody was saying that And that is why so many women flocked to the banner of Jesus. It was unbelievably liberating. So when people say, man, the Bible's anti-woman, you have no idea how subversive Jesus was and how subversive Paul was to the norms of their day. Even the Old Testament stuff, when you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're reading like, really, you sell a person for this? What the world? Da-da-da-da-da. Then you compare it with what was happening in the culture around it, and you say, oh, it really was ahead of its time. The last dimension is the experiential dimension. That means that the Bible is meant to be lived, not learned. In fact, the best way to learn it is to live it. And part of the American church's problem, and I'm a part of this, someone has said the American church has been educated far beyond its willingness to obey. So we love obscure points of doctrine, but loving your neighbor and blessing your enemy, ah, As long as I'm right, love doesn't matter. Boy, Jesus flipped that sucker around, right? So we can debate predestination all day. But until you're laying down your life for others, what's the point? So, six dimensions. Now, let me show you, this is an equipping message. So let me show you the kinds of questions I ask of a text and then we'll jump back into Luke, okay? And this is all too much, I understand that. We're going to skip some Dallas Willard, which hurts my heart. So, the historical dimension. What are the words? What are the significant words? If they're Greek, what are the Hebrew equivalents? If they're Hebrew, what are the Greek equivalents? Are there words that share the same root? Does this word have a picture, image, or practice that it comes from? Are there word plays, puns, innuendo that comes from this? Where else is it used in the Bible? What's its first mention? How often is it used? Is it rare? Is it common? Then I ask about places. Where does this what where does this story event passage take place? What was it known for? How does this place look, feel, feel like? What pictures can I show about? What else happened here? What would the original audience have thought when they heard about this place? I ask about time. What was happening during the events recorded around the world, geographically, politically? Why was this written? And to whom? What relevance do names and dates and places have? So when Luke talks about in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's just not an incidental uh, incidental mention. There's something big going on there. I ask about the literary type. What kind of literature is this? What's said around the passage? I ask about how the text fits into the larger story. Where is it on the progressive revelation of God to His people? What does this have to do with what God's doing today? Where else in the Bible does God say this, do this, act like this? Is it the normal pattern or is it unusual? Does Jesus engage with this idea, subject, tradition, or place? Where does God, where does the vision of life with God given to us in this text clash with the worldviews around it? Where was it revolutionary in its day? How does it confront us? Where is it true outside the Bible? So, that's all intro. Last week... We studied in depth Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. The sermon I gave may have been the greatest sermon ever, (laughs) but you did stay awake. Was that the first one? She said probably. There's an ongoing joke. Some of you have been offended because I I talk about how often my wife falls asleep during my sermons. Some of you are offended by talking about my wife this way. I think it's really cute, endearing, and totally needed by this guy, uh, someone who's unimpressed with him. Now, <laughs> I want to show you how I take those six dimensions and apply it to a text, and you'll see exactly, if you go back and listen to last week, that, that's all this was. My goal is not that you have to feel like you have to become an expert in Greek and Hebrew. My goal is that you learn to ask better questions. Because the biggest obstacle to actually knowing the Bible is thinking you already do. Do you understand that? See, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Kid can understand that. And yet, when I learned this, I did a nine-week series on each word of that verse showing how much is packed for God. So love, why is there a D? Why is it past tense? The world, what's it mean, the world? world is used three different ways. That he gave. Why would he give his son? Why son, not daughter? Why father, not mother? Right? I mean, you ask all of these. My goal is just that Jesus gets bigger in the Scriptures, not smaller. And so often we just come at this thinking we already got it, not willing to work to really get it. And I just want to raise questions. So, put Luke up if you would. Historical dimension. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Now Holy Spirit, interestingly enough, Holy Spirit, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit The Spirit anoints him for ministry. Now the Spirit has filled him and is leading him into the wilderness. Now for Luke, Holy Spirit is kind of a central player in this whole thing. So I didn't go there, but I wondered, okay, so what's the significance of Jesus now being full versus anointed versus conceived? He left the Jordan River. That's a real place, but... There's a whole boatload of significance to the Jordan River. It was the river that the Israelites crossed into the promised land to claim their inheritance. But before they did, they had to prepare themselves. They left a monument there. The Jordan River was hugely significant for coming back in to the promised land. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness Don't skip over wilderness. Wilderness is a huge motif and backdrop in the Old Testament. Wilderness was where Israel was tested. Wilderness is where like the evil spirits were thought to reside, at least one place. Wilderness was a place of testing and preparing for ministry. So it's interesting, Jesus immediately after his baptism is now driven into the wilderness to be prepared. Where for 40 days? Oh, don't skip over 40, because 40 is a really significant number in the Scriptures, right? You've got 40 days with the flood before Noah uh, sent out the dove and the dove came back. You've got 40 days where Moses fasted on two occasions. Elijah fasted for 40 days. You've got 40 years wandering into the wilderness. So 40, big significant number. And if you're paying attention, we've got the Jordan River, led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40-something to be tested. Right? Right? All of a sudden, if you know the Old Testament at all, what are you thinking? Oh, this is Israel's story. Israel was led from the Jordan out back into the wilderness by God for 40 years to be tested. So instantly, and I haven't even gotten to the main part of the text yet, and I've got two or three sermons. Bam, right there. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, oh my goodness, now, now we're starting to get into some narrative stuff, because the narrative dimension says it's hooked into a larger story. Well, we've already seen it's hooked into one larger story, namely the Exodus, where Israel was tested in the wilderness. But now this idea of Son of God, that's really significant for Luke, because in Luke's account, Jesus is called the Son of God by the angel to Mary twice in Luke chapter 1, the Father says, you are my Son, whom I love, in Luke chapter 3. Adam, a lineage is traced from Jesus to Adam, is called the Son of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the Son of God. And so you have Son of god nest kind of all over the place. Oh, so Son of God becomes significant. And we're tempted to think, okay, Jesus' baptism is a cute story by itself. The genealogy is kind of weird. Who cares? And now we're into the temptations. And we think those are all separate stories, But son of God is used in the baptism, son of God is used in the genealogy, and son of God is used here. Evidently, Luke, in writing an orderly account, which is what he says he's writing in Luke chapter 1, is actually telling the story to lead you to a very, very specific kind of conclusion about what it means to be the son of God, to be successfully the son of God, where Israel, the previous son of God, and Adam, the former son of God, each failed, And then you have the specific temptation. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you realize Deuteronomy chapter 6 is really about something that happened in Exodus 16, right? Okay, I'll take your word for it. Sounds vaguely familiar. Right? And so, second temptation comes from Deuteronomy 8. So I go to Deuteronomy 8. That temptation had to do with what happened in Exodus 32. Great. Then you go to the third one. Do not put the Lord God to the test. Well, that comes from Deuteronomy 6 again, which is in reference now to Exodus 17. So, the sermon last week was simple. We started with Israel's the Son of God, went to Exodus 16, 17, 32, then went to the Deuteronomy 6 and 8 passages, zipped through Psalms, which we'll get to why in just a second, and then landed in Luke. You all think this is incredibly profound. It's just simply tracing the narrative dimension back through the story. It's all sitting right there. I'm no genius. This is like, it's good material, (laughs) right? But for, for most of us, it is a bewildering mix of like, what in the world And again, I'm not saying you've got to be experts. Please don't hear me say that. Anybody can open it and you can close your eyes and flip to a passage and point a finger. And God can speak that way. But the enemy can speak that way too. That's my point. And so how do you know when you read Psalm 91 and it says unconditionally, God will not allow you to be harmed. Well, it's very easy to build a whole theology around that, but... Then, like three psalms before it is Psalm 88, which is the most depressing psalm in the book. And it's literally nothing but, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? All night long I groan. And it ends with a dull thud. And we made the profound point that the context of Psalm 91 in the Psalter, but also in the entire Old Testament, just simply leads us to the conclusion that God is faithful, but we do not have the right to determine the conditions under which he will prove himself so. So you've got an historical dimension. Real people, real places, real names, real words. You've got a literary dimension. This is a gospel. A form of ancient biography. Luke's got a point. And he doesn't always make it chronological. He's thematic in some ways. So if somebody says, well, yeah, they disagree on the ordering of things. Yeah, they don't claim to be precise ordering. Luke's got an agenda. He's not some unbiased observer. He wants to show you to the depths of your being that this Jesus is the Son of God. And he orders his material that way. There's a narrative dimension. This text, oh, this is just retelling Israel's story. See, I could have had 10 messages out of this. It's that deep. But the one part that I really want to draw your attention to is the gospel dimension. Because how is this text normally understood? Here's how Jesus resisted temptation. Here's how you resist temptation. Right? Just a one-to-one correspondence. Jesus was compassionate. You be compassionate. So much of teaching is just that. Look at the example of Jesus. Now go do that. And is there a place for that? Utterly and absolutely. But that's not gospel yet. See, by retelling Israel's story and by retelling Adam's story, what Luke is saying isn't that Jesus is our model, but Jesus is our representative. Jesus is the obedient Son, and for those found in Him, we will read later in the New Testament, He is a sympathetic high priest because He underwent temptation. He is able to save completely those who call upon his name because he was perfectly obedient to God. He did what none of us could do. The gospel point is it's not about you resisting temptation, although we can learn about that. The bigger point is that Luke's saying, this is, son of, this is the Son of God that you can trust your life to. Tempted in every way, yet was without sin. It's a gospel point, not a moralistic point. And then the last dimension, the subversive, excuse me, the fifth dimension was subversive. We could have spent all kinds of time on how Jesus was subverting some of the Jewish messianic expectations that were represented in Satan's testing. And then the experiential dimension was simply this. Jesus honored the father's path for him and refused to cash in on his unique relationship with God to forego hunger to worship Satan, to forego the cross. He simply was willing to walk the path of dependence and humility. There's a path before you. Will you take shortcuts or not? But you only get to that part after you've done the other five. Are you with me on this point, men and women? Now, the goal is that you would begin to allow Jesus to get bigger that the scriptures would become... See, people say, man, you bring the scriptures to life. No, the scriptures are alive. I just show where it's alive. It's already there. If, if, if you look at it and it's just dead, well, that kind of says something about us, <laughs> maybe more than it says about it, you know? Because I've gone through seasons where it's just dust and it's utterly boring. I get it, I get it, I get it. And there's no shame if that's where you're at. I'm just simply saying, we have an enemy that loves to take part of it and elevate it over the rest. How much does that happen in our world, in the Christian world today? I'd say a whole heck of a lot. We've got people saying, yeah, we're not going to talk about sin. Mm. Hey, we're just going to talk about the prosperity that's promised. Well, that's Psalm 91 without Psalm 88. Right, I mean, we get that. So we've just been asking, okay, so how do you see the whole story? Now, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And I love that this message leads into that because think about it. Suppose you're here. We had 30 uh, girls from Osaka, Japan who were here last service. Okay, they're part of a, um, a women's soccer team. And this was their cultural experience. Can you imagine you're Buddhist, you're from Osaka, Japan, and you show up to this, right? It's loud, it's dark, some sweaty guys up there kind of talking in a language you're not terribly familiar with. So we take communion, and, and what do they see? They see a piece of bread, little tiny piece of bread. Why is the bread so small? And the tiny little thimble of grape juice, Right? Now, what is that to them? Just bread and grape juice. What is that to those who live under the authority of that story? It's our freedom. It's our calling. It's our salvation. It's irrefutable proof of God's love and His holiness. It is the center of everything we want to be about as a people. Right? So knowing the story makes all the difference between seeing it as grape juice and bread or seeing it as something far more beautiful. So men and women, our goal is to be formed under the authority of these Scriptures. Not because we're just huge fans of more knowledge or information, but because this is the way that God has chosen. One of the ways to reveal Himself to us. And one of the reasons... We immerse ourselves in it is to learn what he sounds like so that we recognize his voice elsewhere. So brothers and sisters, close your eyes for a moment. We're going to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. If you're here, you're not a disciple of Jesus, or you're new, you're not comfortable, man, there is no pressure at all. Go ahead and let these trays pass by you. No one's at the end of the row counting or keeping score. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take the bread, to hold it, to take the cup and to hold it, and we'll celebrate together.